United States submarine base at Key West, Florida. The dispatch that quoted President Truman's press secretary, Charles Cross, as saying that President Truman has no knowledge of any secret project by this government that would give substance to the existence of such objects. Cross also said that both the Air Force and the Navy deny that such objects... Hi. Hi. Um, God. Hey, oh, actually... Hey, what's up? My name is Noelle, and I just rediscovered Theraflu, and it's delicious, and everyone should drink it, because we're all achy and painy. Oh, and I'm Chelsea. I am a moment of silence for the Furby stuffed animal that Puffin and Bear destroyed today. What? Yeah. They ate a stuffed animal? Furby stuffed animal. The one that you got for Valentine's Day? The very one, Noel. That was quick. Little tufts of fluff. Of Furby blood. Wow. Has christened my home with mayhem and destruction. And then I get to clean up. 24 hours yeah. is what you got with it? Are Barely. you going to get a replacement? No, because it came in like a full gift basket. So, whatever. At least you have the- a picture to remember it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to put it in like a little Victorian frame. Um, but yeah, Noel's obsessed with Theraflu, and I'm in mourning. Wait, typical, can you show me a picture? Day. Can you show me a picture of the gift basket so I can look at what the stuffed animal that has passed on looks like? Yeah, yeah it was on my Instagram story for you to view at any time. But you know what? I'll show it to you again in case you yeah, skipped I my Instagram story. Oh, Makes he was little really black cute. Face. Oh, that yeah. sucks. Oh, that's that sucks a lot. I Damn. Know. Look at those little eyes. Damn. Where, where was it? Where was it that they got it? In the living room. But I still, I like my Fresno Nightcrawler in the living room. I have Cactus Cat in the living room. And I have a Narwhal plushie that my dad won me at the fair in the living room. All untouched. But the Furby, maybe because of the eyes were too big and it gained sentience, but did not last. Maybe they just knew they wanted to hit you where it hurts. They did, yeah. They, they're they like, we're not bringing a third into no. this dynamic. Yeah. There's two of us. Mm-hmm. We are good and evil. Mm-hmm. No gray area. Time to die. Was it bear? I don't know. I don't know. That's the thing is destroying stuffed animals is more Puffin's MO, but being bad is more bear's MO. We'll never know. You got to get a know. dog camera. I know I have one, but it like, it won't sync to my phone. I feel like a fucking boomer over here. You want to call their tech support? I should, but I'm not gonna. I'm you just gonna send an email? suffer. I should. I should open a chat and sit on the yeah. chat for like 95 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh fuck. Anyway. So. Anyway, this has n- absolutely nothing per usual as to what you and I are talking about today. Because maybe we, it does. No, not even a little bit. Because we're going back to ancient Greece. <laughs> um, yeah, I think those are related. This. Uh, diverse and spiritually rich that's what we are that's what we were talking about yeah i'm diverse no you're diverse and i'm spiritual neither of us are rich true mm-hmm, facts mm-hmm. so let's let's jump into it um within the diverse and spiritually rich landscape of ancient greece a multitude of religious sites and sanctuaries dotted the terrain each dedicated to various deities and serving distinct purposes Among these, oracles held a place of particular reverence and mystique, acting as mouthpieces through which the gods communicated with the mortals. 
These sacred sites, which were associated with different gods, offered insights and prophecies that guided personal choices and shaped the course of the states. Zeus, the supreme ruler of the Olympian gods, imparted his divine will through oracles at Olympia and Dodona, but it was the Oracle of Delphi, who was dedicated to Apollo, that emerged as the preeminent center of divine prophecy through all of Greek antiquity. I just want to say my brain is so smooth. Every time I hear Apollo, I think of my dog. When we went to your derby bout and there was a skater named Apollo, I was like, (laughs) there is a new official with Junction and he has like a little baby dash hound named Apollo. Fucking cute. Yep. I I die every time. Is he a little creep like this one or no? Is he cool? He's so cool. He'll just like chill in a box, like on a chair by the penalty box mm. for like the whole practice. But he's also just so down for loving. Like you, you would g- cut and paste perfect dog. It's you Apollo dog. They so, honestly might have to rename him because Apollos have to be mischievous and they have to be I bad. There's also the Laura Olympus web comic where Apollo is a rapist. Oh, I don't know. There's oh lots my of dynamics. fucking god! Oh my god! I know. Oh my fucking god! Um, Hi, buddy. Speaking of dogs, Jesus just Christ. ran in. But anyway, every dog um, named Apollo is destined yeah. to be mischievous <laughs> and cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. But also so cute. So Delphi, cradled by the imposing and rugged terrains of Mount Parnassus, and veiled in an almost perpetual mist was not merely a sanctuary, but also a symbol of spiritual guidance and enlightenment. The Pythia, a mysterious priestess serving as Apollo's vessel, delivered oracles from the heart of this sacred precinct. Individuals, rulers, and delegations from across the Greek world and beyond journeyed to this mystic site, driven to the hope of receiving Apollo's guidance. The words spoken by the Pythia were regarded as the direct utterances of the god himself, they imbued with the power to direct wars, forge or dissolve alliances, and herald the founding of cities. And in this era, where the divine was seen as inextricably linked to the mortal world, Delphi stood as a crucial intermediary, a place where heaven and earth intersected. The oracle's role transcended the mere act of prophecy. It was a cornerstone of Hellenic culture and decision-making, and it was the embodiment of deep-rooted belief in the god's active participation in human affairs. The sanctuary of Delphi, therefore, was more than just the site of oracular pronouncements, but rather a testament to the ancient Greeks' quest for knowledge, understanding, and guidance from the divine realm. The significance of Delphi in the ancient world cannot be overstated. It is considered the omphalos, or navel of the world, marked by the sacred stone, also known as the omphalos of Delphi. And it symbolized the center of the earth in Greek mythological tradition. And this central location underscored its importance as a place of universal wisdom and power. And the oracle's influence was such that it played a crucial role not only in religious affairs, but also in the political and social life of ancient Greece. Its prophecies were sought after by major for major decisions. They would talk to her before wars, before colonization efforts. And she actually guided the very fabric of Greek civilization because the words at Delphi could inspire hope, instill fear, and provoke change, which made it the foundational cornerstone of ancient Greek culture and spirituality. This is so fun to hear about because you said priestess, right? Delphi is a girl. 100%. Well, but 
It's so so interesting to hear and see an oracle or prophet, whatever you want to call them, be female. I feel like that doesn't happen. Yeah, and they weren't like young hotties either. They were women chosen from areas like smart women, old women, not necessarily like picked for anything other than the prowess they could bring to like logic analytical stuff like they were Mm -hmm. the fucking einsteins of the area because even even in judeo-christian religions you have nuns right who are supposed to be Mm -hmm. vessels of um like god Mm -hmm. but even they are seen below men and priests so this is interesting yeah no this she fucked you know what i mean yeah um And the reverence for Delphi and the oracle within its sacred bounds underscores the profound spiritual and cultural significance that these religious sites held in ancient Greek society. Delphi not only captivated the hearts and minds of those who visited it, but also cemented its legacy as the most esteemed cradle of the oracle of antiquity. And Delphi didn't house just any oracle. So she, it was called the seat of the Pythia. So oftentimes when you hear about the Oracle of Delphi, I, like many other people, thought it was a singular person. But it was actually this like decades of different women holding this position. Mm. It was the seat of the Pythia, who was a priestess of Apollo, who from the inner sanctum of the Temple of Apollo delivered her cryptic prophecies. Pilgrims from across the Greek world would travel beyond treacherous paths to consult with her, and they would seek answers that would shape their destinies. The prophecies of Delphi could alter the course of wars, cities, lives of individuals, and it was a process that was shrouded in ritual and mystery, with the Pythia entering a trance-like state, and her words were believed to be the voice of Apollo himself speaking directly through her. Do you know if when they went into the sanctuaries or temples if people were allowed to go in with them no uh it was we'll talk about it a little bit but it was a very ritualistic thing that often um required like sacrifice and stuff like that like she didn't meet with just anyone but could anyone witness it no only certain people or no one only certain people who paid the price to see her yeah okay Um, So let's talk about this Pythia in more depth. Serving as the oracle, the Pythia was believed to channel Apollo himself and would deliver prophecies that were so important they were thought to have influenced the fabric of Greek society. Her role was central to the function of the oracle, which made her literally one of the most powerful women in the ancient world. And the selection of the Pythia was a process that was veiled in as much secrecy and solemnity as the prophecies she was famed for dispensing. Contrary to the prevailing myths that often depict oracles as youthful maidens, the Pythia was in reality a woman of more mature years. Historical accounts would often suggest that she was chosen from the local population of Delphi, not for her youth or beauty, but for her life's virtue and depth of wisdom that only years can bestow. Um, As noted by some ancient Greek scholars, quote, she was a figure of profound respect, selected for her role are selected for her noble character and perhaps her unique predisposition to transcend the ordinary consciousness and touch the divine. And the selection... Um, Wait, quick question. So she wasn't born divine. She wasn't 
born into this role. She was chosen. Right. Later on as a full adult. Yeah. And this could happen to anyone. Potentially. Any singular woman. Yes. They weren't like, hey, I'm having visions. They would just be like, you're virtuous. You're going to be it. And then because the process of the ceremony would help her channel Apollo. It wasn't necessarily we have a it wasn't like the Dalai Lama where you have to do like a series of tests beforehand. Mm. It was more important like you and I could be the Oracle of Delphi. If we um, had enough standing within the community to be like revered and respected, and then we would go up there and then through sacred processes, we would be able to channel Apollo and speak for him. Ooh, I almost prefer this version. This is this is a fun one. Yeah. Versus like the Pope, right? Yeah. Versus these like divinely placed and i say divinely in air quotes i mean like the they've worked their ra- their way up through the rank and file of basically yeah. religious congress to get into their positions whether it's a prophet whether it's a priest whether it's the pope whereas yeah. like this is just any any cis can be in it and it's whatever they do during the ritual which i assume is probably a lot of hallucinogenics um makes makes them be a, the mouth of a god which is so fucking metal that's way cool that's way that would make me believe if i was just a guy in fucking ancient greece and like my sister got plucked up from the crowd and you know mm-hmm. we were just playing hopscotch and whatever and now i see her like eyes rolled in the back of her head speaking out a voice that is supposed to be a god i would be like mm-hmm. damn i believe in this hard i believe in this so fucking hard yeah, and it's a bummer, too, that it reflects, like, things that we don't necessarily hold sacred anymore as a society, because it it was an older lady who might as well be trash by, like, mm-hmm. Western standards, right? Yeah. It, it showed, like, a deep-seated belief that true insight and the capacity to interface with gods were traits that you could only cultivate through a lifetime of experience and mortal rectitude. They believed that women who had lived over five decades were the ones who amassed enough wisdom and had enough moral integrity to fill such a sacred role. Yeah. Also that smart old female. That's it. Like also, you know, people were living to 50. Yeah. Wow. Where did we go wrong? Uh, we started living too communally, and we didn't invest in sewer systems early enough. Mm, that's true. We didn't use. We. St- I feel like we stopped using soap, right? Because like ancient Egyptians, and we could assume the ancient Greece were into bathing and perfumery. So we could also assume yeah. they were like practicing hygiene, just better than us in every way. Yeah. yeah. And then we were like, guess what sucks? <laughs> soap <No>. and water. <laughs> Okay, okay, this is all making sense now. <laughs> so historians remark that the pithy of selection was a testament to community value. They prioritized spiritual purity and the accumulation of wisdom over superficial qualities of youth. How would it be? Right. So once chosen, this Pythia would assume a role of unparalleled spiritual significance 
and she would commit herself entirely to the service of Apollo in his temple. Her life thereafter was inextricably linked to the sanctuary, where she would embody the divine voice on earth. And it was not a temporary mantle that she could shed at will. It was a lifetime dedication, a surrender to the divine that demanded every ounce of her being. To become the Pythia was to cease being merely human. You would instead transform into the living vessel through which gods speak. Could you say no? I don't know why you would. What if I don't want to become a tool or vessel? It's a really good question. I did not find anything about that. Mm, okay. So if it happened, if it happened, there's no record of it. Okay. That's fair. But you know what? Maybe autonomy wasn't a big thing back then. Who knows? Not Also, me. like, over, like, it might be a life improvement, right? Like, you get to go live in a temple and just talk to people instead of, like, doing other stuff. Like, it, it was probably so ceremoniously significant that no one would turn it down. Yeah, that's fair. They weren't doing weird things to them, right? They were doing weird things to other people. They would not, you know, they, these were women who were revered and protected. It wasn't, there wasn't any, like, so they just molestation had to, or beating or anything like that. They just had to bear witness to, like, maybe yeah. human sacrifice. No human sacrifice. A sacrifice of an animal? Uh, yeah, or, like, donations of gold. Oh, okay. So... Oracular consultations were not everyday occurrences, so instead they were treated more as solemn events that were scheduled on specific auspicious days of the month, aligning with the divine calendar and Apollo's availability to lend his voice to the mortal realm. The demand to, con to consult with the oracle was very high, and the process was meticulously organized. Petitioners, be they individuals bearing personal dilemmas or emissaries of cities, states seeking guidance on matters of public concern, were all required to submit their questions in advance. Many would spend months, sometimes longer, in anticipation, waiting for their moment to stand before the Pythia and receive the wisdom of that Apollo sought fit to bestow upon them. And the journey to consult the Pythia at Delphi was an odyssey of like really big spiritual significance. Um, there were rituals, ancient customs designed to prepare both the seeker and the seer for their divine encounter. And to seek an audience with the Pythia was to engage in a tradition that was as old as the stones of Delphi itself. It was a practice that was imbued with the awe and solemnity, benefiting a direct conversation with God. This elaborate process commenced with rites of purification, where pilgrims and inquirers first cleanse their bodies and spirits at the Castalian Spring. They would immerse itself themselves in their its cool, clear waters, and this was believed to wash away mortal impurities and to prepare the soul for communion with the divine. Another example of hygiene. Um, following the cleansing, sacrifices were offered to Apollo, typically of livestock or other valuable goods, which were a way to gain favor and ensure that the deity's attention was firmly on the petitioner's earnest inquiry. And next, the heart of the actual consultation unfolded within the temple's most sacred space, the Adytan. So she doesn't have to see any of the other stuff. She doesn't have to watch the bathing. She doesn't have to watch the sacrifices. Like, she sees them once they're there okay. before her. Okay, I get it. I would probably agree. And it was a pretty mysterious place. Sorry, Puffin's in here and he might be boofing because I think 
I don't know. Uh, shrouded in mystery and accessible only to the Pythia and her attendants, this inner sanctum was where heaven and earth conversed. Seated on a tripod placed directly over a chasm, the Pythia became the conduit for Apollo's will. It just sounds so, like, death metal. Um, and it was here in this hallowed chamber that she would slip into her trance, and her soul would align with the divine threshold to receive Apollo's cryptic messages. The air itself was said to be charged with anticipation as the Pythia, enveloped in sacred vapors, sacred vapors, yeah, uttered prophecies that altered destinies. That's so sick. I imagine, because even it said, like, where, where hollowed chambers, yeah, this just empty marble and then just a creepy old lady sitting over a chasm yeah also tripod that's just i imagine almost um exorcism body positioning i imagine um a mix between when indiana jones goes to get the cup like how the sacredness of the air changes and there's like you know what I mean? It's like one wrong move, you're fucked. So that atmosphere combined with like like a dark, almost like where Daenerys would like do all of her war stuff, like a dark cave. Mm-hmm. But instead of having the table there, it was just a bottomless pit. And that's where she sits. Yeah. Also so scary to sit above the bottomless pit. But right? I, I imagine as she is enveloped in sacred vapors i'm assuming all types of hallucinogenics that mm-hmm. she's emily rose style like writhing and just yeah not just head tilted up eyes rolled back mouth open uttering like in a masculine voice you know what i mean yeah oh my god it's so fucking cool so fucking metal dude so cool we used so, to be a society. <laughs> I'm so bummed. Even yeah. if you weren't the Oracle, you could still be one of her attendants and just sitting there tripping balls as she like shapes the foundation of Western civilization all by herself. Like, yeah. And now we have fucking churches in strip malls. So I know. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <sighs> anyway, so the oracles that she would speak were famously enigmatic. They were woven in riddles that oftentimes could dance around the truth. But these mysterious responses necessitated careful interpretation by temple priests who would then decipher Apollo's words and translate the divine into guidance that seekers could apply to their lives. And there were over 500 reported prophecies linked to the Oracle of Delphi that have been preserved through a variety of sources. So we're going to dive into the most famous ones now. And she doesn't fucking miss. Hell yeah, dude. Hellsgate is a supernatural roller derby comic book series dripping of blood, demons, and glitter. Saya is a fresh meat skater with a dangerous crush on her favorite derby player. Desperate to be accepted, she attempts to cast a magic spell in hopes of winning her idol's admiration, but instead unleashes a demonic possession that seeks to destroy her and her team at that night's Halloween game. The first issue is out now. Visit hellsgate.com to get your limited edition copy today. Lycurgus of Sparta, who was a key figure in ancient Greece history, 
is known to have transformed Sparta into the biggest military power in the 8th century BCE. And despite the scarcity of details about his life, one of the most prominent things people write about is actually his visit with the Oracle of Delphi, specifically because it stands out as the most intriguing event of his life. Imagine, you transform Sparta into a military power that we are even aware of to this day, and still the most interesting thing about you is visiting this oracle. Um, well, you know what they all have in common? Bottomless pits. True, man. Maybe you should bring that back. So, according to the historian Herodotus, writing three centuries later, this consultation was unique for its vague circumstances and the Pythia's extraordinary response. So she told him, Lycurgus, here you are. You have come to my rich temple, beloved of Zeus and all who dwell on Olympus. Should I address you in my prophecy as a god or as a man? I think it would be better to call you a god, Lycurgus. And she also went on to say, love of money and nothing else will ruin Sparta. Ooh. So following this, it's believed that the Pythia gave him guidance on how to reform Sparta. So it wasn't just one single prophecy and then you leave. Like you would consult with her, right? Mm -hmm. And he used this advice to overhaul Spartan society. So everything that we fucking know about Sparta, this guy enacted because of the oracle. She told him how to create a state focused on producing elite warriors which actually elevated this guy to elite status of near-mythical levels and led Sparta to becoming a lead great Greek city-state. Everything, I can't stress this enough, everything we fucking know about Sparta of being the badass military people that we see mm -hmm. throughout pop culture even to this day came from the Oracle of Delphi's instructions. Damn, that's pretty metal. But as far as the love of money and nothing else will ruin Sparta, this came true too. Because what happened was wealth that Sparta soldiers brought back from the Peloponnesian War played a pivotal role in the city-state's eventual decline because it marked a significant departure from its traditional values and a way of life. Sparta had been known for its militaristic society, which ended up being fundamentally altered by an influx of gold and silver following their victories in war. Because no one wanted to go to war and fight anymore because they were all rich? Well, kind of. Because before this influx, Spartan society was characterized by its emphasis on equality, discipline, communal living, with little regard for wealth. It was essentially mm. a society built on being a badass with good character. Yeah. Spartans were expected to live modestly dine communally in mess halls, and eschew any accumulation of personal wealth in favor of strengthening the collective might and virtue of the state. This lifestyle was integral to maintaining the fierce loyalty and discipline that made the Spartan army one of the most formidable forces in ancient Greece. But you introduce substantial wealth into any society, and it's yeah. going to get massive changes to its societal values and it's gonna get ugly and nasty it's the whole like you know money can't buy happiness exactly because what ended up happening was all of the traditions of ancient spartan life were changed and undermined because you introduce luxury greed and inequality into a society that had previously prided itself on its egalitarian and ascetic principles as wealth became the new measure of power a cohesive social fabric underpinned Spartan society, or the 
social fabric of Spartan society began to unravel because it eroded communal bonds and martial discipline that had been Sparta's strength, which led to internal strife and weakening of its military prowess. A tale as old as time, the ritual and everything. Because previously, people feared Sparta. But what happened was the accumulation of wealth led to envy and hostility from other Greek city-states, which isolated Sparta and contributed to its decline and influence in the power of the Greek world. The very virtues that made Sparta a dominant force were compromised and led it to a vulnerable and external threat of eternal decay. So Athens, like Sparta, greatly benefited from the Oracle of Delphi. Around 594 BCE, Solon, a key figure in Athens, sought advice from the Pythia regarding the future of his city. At the time, Athens was under the control of a wealthy elite and was ruled by tyrants. And Solon was ready for big changes and looked to the oracle for guidance. And she told him, quote, Position your na- yourself now amid ships, for you are the pilot of Athens. Grasp the helm tight in your hands. You have many allies in your city. And he interpreted this as a sign to change Athens' political system without becoming a tyrant himself. He introduced significant reforms that helped everyone, not just the rich. This included jury trials, fair taxes, and canceling old debt to help the poor start over. Damn! Oh, he killed it. That's huge. To honor Delphi, a new rule was made that officials must swear to always be just when they took office. And if they broke this promise, they had to give a life-size gold statue to Delphi. Oh, um, see, this was the cool way of doing put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth. Yeah. If you're not going to do it, you got to pay up. And Damn. Solon's reforms didn't happen overnight, but over the next hundred years. And guess what that led to the birth of? Fucking democracy yeah, came from the like Oracle it. of Delphi. So let's, and now let's jump into a story we all know and love. In 480 BC, a pivotal moment in history unfolded as Xerxes, the son of Darius the Great of Persia, sought to complete his father's mission by conquering Greece. Amidst this looming threat, the Athenians turned to the Oracle of Delphi for guidance. And the Oracle's initial response was pretty ominous. She said, now your statues are standing in pouring sweat. They shiver with dread. The black blood drips from your highest rooftops. They have seen the necessity of evil. Get out. Get out of my sanctum and drown your spirits in woe. I don't think that was ominous. I think she just didn't like him. (laughs) Probably not. Um, But they did go in for a second consultation. They were like, please. So, um, The oracle this time suggested that a wall of wood alone shall be uncaptured, a boon to you and your children. Further advice from her was given to flee and not await the enemy's arrival, but rather find a destiny in battle near by telling them, O holy Salamis, you will be the death of many a woman's son between the seed time and the harvest of grain. I don't know how to interpret any of this. This is why she had people. Also, my smooth brain... uh, fresh head but um yeah what's seed time and grade of harvest it's like uh spring and fall we'll dive into so summer interpret (laughs) i don't fucking know dude because sometimes they interpret things it's like clearly this meant xyz and i'm like Um, i would have killed everyone 
Um, next, enter the Spartans who are facing the same threat. They receive their own prophecy with a stark choice. The Oracle told them that either their city would fall or Spartan king would die. In all fronts for Athens and the Spartans, it seemed like inevitable doom. Now, as the Persian forces, forces advanced, the Delphinians sought their own counsel from the Oracle, who which advised, Pray to the winds. They will prove to be mighty allies of Greece. And this prophecy came to life during the Battle of Thermopylae, where the Spartans, led by King Leonidas, made their legendary stand. And despite their ultimate sacrifice, the Spartans' bravery became immortalized in history as Leonidas and his 300 men fell to the Persian army. The Persians then What was faced- it, Gerard Butler? Hell yeah, it was Gerard oh, yeah, Butler. Was Gerard Butler. Just wanted to make sure as this yep. played out in my mind, yep. I was seeing yep. the right people. The Persians then faced the Athenian fleet near Cape Artemisium. Amidst the fierce battles, a sudden storm wreaked havoc on Persian ships. A t- twist of fate aligning with the oracle suggestions to seek the wind's aid. Next, in Athens, the Mistocles, I was doing so Great good, job. for Mistocles, interpreted that the wall of wood was the Athenian navy, leveraging the city's resources to fortify their fleet. This strategic move, inspired by the Delph- by Delphi's prophecy, led to the decisive Battle of Salamis. The Mistocles' insight, interpreting Salamis as a site where the Greek enemies would fall, not Athens, actually proved p- pivotal. As the Athenians and allied fleets vanquished the Persians, the course of the war shifted. That was so many words, my tongue hurts. Yeah, that was rough. There's a lot of keys in that yeah. sentence. The aftermath saw Athens persevere. Its people were safe, the Persian threat was nullified, and everybody was blessed with Spartan abs on the silver screen. Hell yeah. The Oracle of Delphi's stature soared, its predictions having guided the Greeks through one of their darkest hours to a momentous victory. Basically, everything that they were going to do, they did not do, and they lived. Her oracle to the Spartans, either you all fucking die and lose the war or you sacrifice your king, also proved true. Mm -hmm. You get the Battle of the 300. And this actually pretty much saved Western civilization because had all of that fallen – democracy we wouldn't have gotten it it wouldn't have persevered in that region like who knows how the world would have been shaped yeah but it would have been very different um and another encounter with a man we really got to fucking do an episode on the year 67 ad nero? Em- emperor nero yeah. okay okay, okay, okay. it's called Brucey! into the pythia's presence now at just the age of 30 and notorious for the grim matricide in 59 AD, he killed his mom. Mm-hmm. Nero sought counsel from the Oracle of Delphi, but he instead provoked a startling response from her. She said, Your presence here outrages the god you seek. Go back, matricide. The number 73 marks the hour of your downfall. She pissed him off. Yeah, what does that mean? 73? Well, First, enraged by the prophecy, Nero retaliated by having the Pythia executed by burning her alive, a deed that further tarnished his already controversial reign. And guess what? He not only misinterpreted the oracle's words, but he actually believed that he was destined for a long reign. He assumed that he would reach the age of 73 before facing any threat to his rule. But ironically, 
the prophecy's true meaning was not linked to Nero's lifespan, but rather to the catalyst of his downfall, because the emperor's reign was abruptly ended not by reaching the old age of 73, but was actually led by a revolt by a man named Galba, who at the time was 73 years old. That's spooky. That's Ooh, spooky, girl. She, she never missed. Dude. Also, R.I.P. Yeah. Also, R.I.P. <laughs> I know. Quick, actually. I know. Well, how rude. Burn her alive? alive? It's a little much. Like, I mean, much. I guess if you murdered your mom, burning an oracle yeah. alive is par for the course. That's just pocket change at that point. Yeah. Like, you've already paid the bill, you know? I was going to say, it's surprising that no one um, revolted against him, but they did. And it was a 73-year-old, so. Yeah. Grandpa but, stepped in. You didn't yeah. like how these young bucks were acting. And uh, the twist of fate underscored the precision of the Oracle's prophecy and demonstrated divine foresight that Nero attempted to disregard. Now, there are only a few remaining prophecies after this point that the Oracle of Delphi would give. And I would really encourage people to look into her long history and how her prophecies not only impacted Greece, but the world we know today. Like, as we said at the top of this episode, there's like, oh, there's roughly 500 she gave. And a lot of them are vague, but it's interesting to see how they would play out. Um, But for now, we want to end the episode by diving into the last prophecy she would ever make. Because as Christianity spread, it's believed that Apollo, along with other oracles, stopped communicating with people. And the very last message from the Oracle of Delphi was recorded and has reached us through history by none other of Julian the Apostate, who received this final oracle written in poetic form. It said, Tell the emperor that the Grand Hall is crumbled. Phoebus no longer has his home. No oracle laurel, no sacred spring, and the water that once spoke is now quiet. Uh, Phoebus is another name for Apollo. Oh. Sad, right? No sacred spring for people to come and cleanse themselves to speak to her. The water that once spoke is now quiet. Apollo no longer has his home. The Grand Hall is crumbled. Bummer, right? What does that mean? Well. Because Christianity came through? Yeah. That's and so the main no, thing. no one was participating, or they literally fucked it all up. Uh, Did they break it down and stuff and light it unclear. on fire? Okay. We can dive into it a little bit. Because the emperor at this time was actually really trying to restore the old ways, um, but it was too late for the oracle. So the account, alongside with others, was preserved through various historical texts, including. Byzantine historian George Sandrenus, but it underlined the dramatic shift from the ancient practices into the new Christian era, marking the significant cultural and religious transition at the time. And while the loss of the oracle is definitely sad from a historical and just badass perspective, mm-hmm. it does represent a pivotal moment in the evolution of human belief systems. Oh, yeah, because with away. her, yeah. Yeah. With her death comes in Christianity and monotheism. Yep. And Could the end you, of women. <laughs> and the, yeah. And the end of women holding power. Could you, let, let's have a real conversation real, real quick before we jump to this. Because Christianity is monotheistic. Yes. But people have reverence for Jesus, who is not God and like the Virgin Mary. So and just like there are a bunch of saints, right? Well, 
Jesus is not God would be incorrect because he's part of the Trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he's All not God. Of that. But he's not God. Uh, it's a little, it's, so there are some who believe that that is distinctly different. Um, I believe Mormons believe that that is a distinctly different trinity. Um, if you go into Presbyterian, for example, they believe it is one and the same. It would be like, I live in this room, there's that room and that room, but they're all in one house. You can call them different things, but they're all the same house. But how could you say that, like, because God is supposed to be like omnipotent and all-seeing, and then he sent Jesus as like a henchman. Yeah. So it's you part- you you already see the superiority of God over Jesus. So how could you say that they're yeah. the same when he has clearly made them different? Um, I say it's the same because my easy cop out is that's how I was taught. But I will say <laughs> I am t- I'm not informed enough to explain it in a way that takes. I, I would be happy to research it and find out how that all functions. I don't understand it myself. I feel like Christianity is actually not monotheistic. Because I also feel like choosing certain saints to make altars to is just like choosing a god that you want to tap into. I mean, good point. Um, a lot of saints have probably taken over a lot of this aspect mm-hmm. in um, the Jungian shared consciousness. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of like the saints as like a, a phone provider. Who am I choosing to connect me? Am yeah, I but I bet that's probably early? what they thought when they went to specific like pantheons of the gods, right? Exactly. Yeah, like it's it's kind of like the same thing. Yeah, it's so similar, man. Yeah. That's why it's like, how can you be an authority on what is or what isn't when mm -hmm. all of this shit just wraps up into a collective whole? Yeah. It's so, I wonder what made the Christian faith like separate itself from saying like multiple, I mean, obviously it's in the Bible, right? Saying like you, it's the whole, like you will only, whatever that jealous God verse line is about, you can only worship me. And like, I am your only. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Yeah. That one. The commandment. Yeah. Which um, is interesting. It says that that's like, cause I don't know that seems so contradictory to what people actually do in practice. And why did that have to be a commandment? when they just kept the old ways anyway. They still brought in different religious figures that hold different esteem and house over different, essentially, verticals, right? Like, you could even have the dudes who wrote the Bible and whatever. Some people would, like, look at them as divine in a certain way. And so it's like, you've actually, you're actually not monotheistic because everyone is getting worshipped in some sort of way in some sort of capacity and he never specified like the commandment never specified the amount of reverence you could have it's very blank statement as in like none and so yeah you would you would think even um even holding well, we'll even throw Jesus out because some people believe that he's the same as God, which I don't think in the order of operations makes sense. But we could even put into um, M- Mother Teresa and the Virgin Mary and um, give me a saint's name. St. Teresa of Avila. Like, you could argue 
that having any sort of reverence and worship of them is a commandment against God. But you're not worshiping a patron saint. They serve more as like uh, an advocate for your ailment. So that's why some resonate with specific saints and why some don't. Like I I'm feel not- like that verse in the commandment, if God was to come into your living room and see a painting or a statue, like other wearing, idols, yeah. Wearing it, that is an idol. Wearing a necklace, having a statue, having a painting—that's an idol. It's a form of idolization. So, um, I'm just a little confused. I was a little fucking confused. I, I just, yeah, it's it is confusing. Uh, I know that it doesn't count as idolatry because it that still implies a, a side of part of worship. You can be reverent to things, but not worship them. You're not worshiping saints, but you may have reverence for them and be like, this is a good person to align some of my own ailments and values with. I, I don't want to use- To make to a re- statue of me, I would think that you are worshiping me. Yeah, that would be fucking weird. But if I have like a St. Teresa of Avila necklace that says, pray for us, she was afflicted with migraines throughout her life. So maybe I would believe that this is a representative to advocate for my own personal ailment because I'm not always praying. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's more like that. Like, it's, it's, I'm not an expert on it, but that's how I would understand it. And I think that, that it's it's a good example of me to communicate one way, but there's nothing coming back. I think that's kind of the difference. Like if you pray to a saint, they're not saying like, this is what God says, whereas the oracle did that. You'd go mm-hmm. talk to the oracle and she would tell you what God was saying. Mm-hmm. I think that's a difference, but I, th- I do agree it's similar. I, I wish I had more authority on that type of stuff uh, to be able to give you the answers that would make for a book and cherry on top of this episode. Well, I guess like also trying to understand from an almost anthropo- anthropological standpoint of like why the thought process was to go monotheistic, like why the thought process was to go to one singular God versus a um, history of um, gods. And I, like, when did the tide turn that that was seen as, like, barbaric? Was it because, depending on what god or gods you resonated with, the culture around your society would, like, kind of divvy yes. off from the whole? So, if if you believe in a monotheistic religion, your government will also function monotheistically. Mm-hmm. So, we have yeah, yeah. a god, we have a president. Mm-hmm. We have a son and a vice president. You know what I mean? We have yeah. saints. We have Congress. Like it is very similar copy paste for society. Say like Athens, who had a multitude of gods that they would pray to. They also had a multitude of representatives running like mm. a society. Yeah. Um, where you start to see that really clash, for example, would be. Um, Oh, I'm not really the authority on this. I think it changed because women became like less revered 
um, if you want to go from like an anthropological standpoint. So we had to culturally remove them from positions of power. And so we aligned ourselves with religions that kind of let us do that. And I'm not saying that we were shit on by Christianity. It's just that my role changed from being able to grow old and be Mm -hmm. wise and collect thoughts and offer wisdom to I am now a mother. Subservient. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that makes sense. And I bet that it was also a form, obviously, like that's it's a form of control. Like monotheism yeah. is a form of control. If you have everyone believing the same thing, no ifs, ands, or buts, they're coloring within the lines. That and that's sense. where you get into um fucking like flat earth theory, man. That's where it starts to skew the singular <laughs> government. The singular yeah, the, it's yeah. funny. It's funny that um conspiracy theorists now are worried about like a one world government, um, a singular religion, right? When yeah. that's kind of like what the predominant religion is already doing. You know? Yeah. Like Yeah, what? exactly. So it's like, what are we actually even saying when they're afraid of a one world government, one world religion? What do you actually like? You mean how we are now? Yeah. So I don't it's, know. Yeah, it's really weird. So like, fear one world government, but then they're like, everyone needs to be Christian. Yeah, it's like what? Well, yeah, makes no fucking sense. Ruh. I know. Anyway, so, yeah. So going back to like the last prophecy, this would forever like as soon as she said that would forever mark the silence of Delphi. Um, it was an end of an era where God spoke directly to man. And despite this, like it does live on in modern culture, references to Delphi and its oracle services, films, novels, video games, and the allure of prophecy and the ancient world still holds an undiminished appeal. This isn't boring history that we talk about. And the oracle's influence further extends into philosophical discussion, psychological analysis, and it probes the depths of human belief into the the supernatural, and it continues to perpetuate our longing to decipher the undecipherable. Hell yeah, dude. I love it. I have been wanting to talk about this for a minute, and I'm glad we finally did. Yeah, I'm upset that we strayed away from being oracles. I know. Fuck, dude. We could have been so cool. Now what? Now what? Now what? What do I live up to now? Like, what can I aspire to be? Um, The wife of a megachurch pastor. Right. I can aspire to be employed. Hmm. That's it. (laughs) This is cool, though. Oh, I love her. Interesting. I know. So cool. And we're just now I want to go back and watch 300. Because there is yeah. the Oracle scene where she's all like, bah, 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 bah. yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad that that scene didn't influence the way that I imagined her based off of this yeah, description. Because she wasn't that hot. No, but still fucking cool. That's so fun. This has really got my brain churning butter when talking about like the strategic plays of religion. Yeah. Hmm. Um, hmm. I also had no idea what it. Like I knew about it because that's just like my, my my TikTok algorithm, but it was also like stuff that I've been interested in a minute just because Greek mythology is fun. Mm-hmm. I had no idea though that our that our entire world as we know it was shaped by these prophecies. Yeah. Democracy? Get out of here. I had no like, idea. 
I feel like they really leave that part out. Yeah. Um, Because I guess that could make you question your religion, right? It would make sense why they would leave it out. Yeah, question your religion and also whether or not uh, women's influence on society should be held on a pedestal and considered sacred. Interesting. Well, speaking of women in society, you can support two women in society by going to the link tree in all of our bios. I'm at Noel Fane. That's at Sith Lord. We are at Go to Hell Podcast. And in that link, you can find our Patreon. A dollar gets you in. Sorry, controversial episode part two on Patreon. Um, remember you signed an NDA, so don't talk about it. Um, you can also find a link to our merch. 100% of proceeds are donated. We do have two campaigns going on. Um, in perpetuity, the campaign for the Humane Society of Yuma, which actually, if I remember correct, let me look this up. When did this happen? Um, friend of the podcast, James Mack, who works for the Humane Society of Yuma, someone a day ago, so Thursday, someone on Thursday stole their donation jar, which is fucking demonic and evil. They were doing a Humane Society. Puppies and kittens, you yeah. fuck, you piece of shit. Literally robbing puppies and kittens. So that's fucking evil and demented. So if you want to help support the Humane Society of Yuma in general, and also because someone stole their fucking donations, evil, you can go grab our Humane Society shirt. We also have our shirt for Glitter Bomb still up. All the proceeds go to her family. And we have a bunch of other merch. So check it all out. You yeah, can also we've, between what? the two of them, I just want to say, we've racked up like almost split like probably about 250 to 300 dollars in donations for each program which is so cool 100 percent of that goes in um we paypal it directly to yuma and then i was sending it to um glitters gofundme but i'm gonna just start venmoing it directly to her daughter uh love it tons of cash in pocket yeah i love it for a million reasons mostly because we mark down the merch to as cheap as it could be while still covering costs of production and making profit off of it. So the profit on these is actually really small. So the fact that we're able to get hundreds of dollars for these two mm-hmm. campaigns is huge. So yeah. we super go appreciate it as low as like bonfire will let us like, they won't let us go below a certain amount. So some of our, like we clear with like 18 cents sometimes. So it's mm-hmm. actually like super cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Really fun. Um, Love it. Appreciate everyone so much. And like always, if you want to donate to them directly, um, just send us proof of that and we will send you um, the files. You can do whatever you want with it of the art. Make your own shirt if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have links to our Discord server. Hang out there because Facebook's finally dead. Thank God. Think even though Chelsea's revived it, Chelsea's on Facebook more than <laughs> grandma's. It's crazy. I'll I get notifications. I will look at Facebook once a week and I get the notification that's like Chelsea's posted 17 fucking things and shared 17 fucking more. And I'm like, what the hell is she doing on Facebook? Really acting fucking her age. Thriving, partying. Yeah, acting her fucking Staying age. Moisturized and hydrated, baby. 
it's going to be a cesspool, girl. We're in the nine-month countdown to another presidential election, and it feels mm-hmm. like fucking Groundhog Day. Another leap year, another Biden v. Trump, another Chiefs win the Super Bowl after playing the Niners. We are repeating history, so I'm really excited to see what global pandemic will take us out this time. Yeah. Uh, ourselves we are the pandemic that's true we always have been um and so is facebook you can also find links to listen to us which is anywhere podcasts are heard i think that's it oh my god i forgot kelly oh, oh you piece of shit you son of a bitch um most importantly you could find a link to Kelly Holloran or at Wildwood Owl on Etsy. She makes cool shit for us and she makes cool shit in general. So you know, I hope I hope you can forgive yourself for that. I know I'm Kelly not. will forgive you, but I don't I'm I don't not. know if I can forgive you. I'm not. I'm not gonna do I was so distracted by Facebook that I forgot to shout out Kelly, which is so typical of Facebook to distract yeah. and rot the brain. <laughs> also, I'm just scrolling through my Facebook feed. It's just jellyfish all jellyfish that's well, all it is every time you post a jellyfish mark zuckerberg gets his wings so how does that make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. makes yeah. me feel bad so i can't talk shit too much dude i'd be on facebook marketplace it's the only reason why i've been deleted <laughs> i know shit. i see you posting the same red tank top from urban outfitters i don't know I see you posting it or free people. It just yeah, pops up on my feed. Like, it, dude, it wants week. you to buy it so bad. I haven't touched that ad since October. Um, and I, you're selling it for $15. Yeah. Why don't you buy I, it? I'm not paying $15. <laughs> it's a free people motorcycle shirt. I know, but it pops up all the time. It's like Noel has a posting from Marketplace and I get the little notification and I click on it and it's the same tank top every fucking week i'm gonna see if i can only make it show up for you i'm gonna <laughs> you're gonna buy that shirt by the end of the day oh my god i think about it like in my spare time that's how often it pops up dude like, that's how much on? you subconsciously want it i don't oh, i don't look i don't look good in red bitch. i will drop the price to ten dollars for you because you you're my friend give me the shirt for free if you wanted me to have it that <laughs> bad. get out of my face and i don't want it you're dreaming of it just oh buy God. it. It's just send me, a, me. send me a message. <laughs> send me a message and ask to barter for a handshake. <laughs> if you send me a message and have something good to barter, I'll think about giving you the shirt that you dream of. All right, I'll find it. I'm gonna barter so, with a photo of my butthole. Okay, you know, we'll see if that if that works out for you. Um, but anyway. We'll Speaking of buttholes, let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Oh my god. Bye. Bye. Oh, you didn't say anything. Oh my god. I'm Hail falling the off the wagon. Hail the shirt. I'm leaving before you can say anything. Hail the shirt. Uh. <laughs>